1: In terms of impact on our lives and improving our lives and upside, this will be the the greatest technology humanity has yet developed.
2: When Sam Altman, head of OpenAI, uttered those words not long ago, he wasn't met with a chorus of doubt or disdain. Altman's group developed ChatGPT and GPT-4, two artificial intelligence tools that have given the global public a taste of what AI developers had already known. That AI could be a technology more transformative to the human race than when our ancestors first controlled fire, or invented the printing press, or created the internet. But even Altman recognizes that civilization-changing technology is never an unalloyed good, as he recently told ABC's Rebecca Jarvis.
1: We've got to be cautious here. And, and also, I, I think it doesn't work to do all this in a lab. You've got to get these products out into the world and, and make contact with the reality, make our mistakes while the stakes are low. I think people should be happy that we're a little bit scared of this.
0: I think people should be You're happy. You're a little bit scared?
1: A little bit, yeah, You personally? Course. I think if I said I were not, you should either not trust me or be very unhappy after this job.
2: Sundar Pichai, head of Google, echoed those sentiments on CBS's 60 Minutes when he was asked if he thought the world was ready for their AI tool called BARD.
3: I feel no, uh, because you know the pace at which we can think and adapt as societal institutions compared to the pace at which the technology is evolving, there seems to be a mismatch. How do you develop AI systems that are aligned to human values and including uh, morality? This is why I think the development of this needs to include not just engineers, but social scientists, ethicists, philosophers, and so on. And I think we have to be very thoughtful. And I think these are all things society needs to figure out as we move along. It's not for a company to decide.
2: This is On Point, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Quote, contemporary AI systems are becoming human competitive at general tasks. And we must ask ourselves, should we risk loss of control of our civilization? Such decisions must not be delegated to unelected tech leaders. Powerful AI systems should be developed only once we are confident that the effects will be positive and their risks will be manageable, end quote. That is from an open letter published in March from the Future of Life Institute. It wasn't signed by technophobes or Luddites. It was signed by nearly 30,000 people, many of whom are creating new AI technologies right now. And they're calling for a short pause, or an AI summer, if you will, so that the rest of humanity and the governments which represent them can catch up and be more active regulators of the technology that will change all our lives. Stuart Russell signed the letter. He's a prominent AI researcher and thinker. He's a computer science professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He's been in the field for four decades, and his texts are used in AI courses around the world. He's also author of the book Human Compatible, AI and the Problem of Control. Professor Russell, welcome.
4: Hi, Megner. It's nice to be with you.
2: And also, I should note that you signed uh, this open letter. Is that correct? I did, yes. So tell me about this comparison of artificial intelligence technologies being as transformative to the entire human race as fire, as the printing press, as, you know, the Internet itself. Is that hyperbole?
4: Uh, No, not at all. Um, But I think we have to be clear whether we're talking about the specific technologies that have already been developed and released or the long-term goal of the field, uh, which we call general-purpose AI, or these days AGI, Artificial General Intelligence. And there's no question that AGI would be the most significant invention in the history of the human race. So tell me
2: more. Why is there no question? What does it do that makes it more significant than, than everything else that's come before?
4: So our our entire civilization is the result of our intelligence. We're, we're not particularly big. We're not particularly strong. We don't have particularly long teeth and claws, um, but we have intelligence and that's what's given us um, dominance over the planet, over all the other species. And it's led to uh, everything that you see around you, um, you know, every, all the knowledge that we've accumulated. So if we have access to much more intelligence then uh, we could have a hopefully much better civilization. but the the thing that um is causing concern, uh, and I think you uh, you mentioned this in your introduction, is that um if we build systems that are more powerful than human beings, because after all, you know it's intelligence that gives us the power. Um, if we have systems that are more powerful than us, how do we, maintain power over them forever. Hmm. And that's that's the underlying concern um, that uh, e- even Alan Turing, the founder of computer science back in 1951, um, he thought about this problem and he, his conclusion was we should have to expect the machines to take control. So that's why this is the most important uh, invention. It would either be the beginning of a golden age for humanity or it could be uh the end of human history if we don't get it right.
2: Even Turing said we have to expect the machines to take control. I actually I mean I did not know that that he had he had said that. But this you know, you just said the you essentially said that we could go down a path that leads to the end of humanity. You're not the only person in in this in this uh field who who has said that, but that is I mean that is such a striking, almost unimaginable thing to say that we could, in fact, be creating a technology right now that would. Are you saying it could lead to the end of the human race, the existence of the human race?
4: Uh, yep. I mean, put another way, I I don't think it's a particularly radical thing to say. I mean, if you uh, if you want to be a skeptic about that, and there are certainly plenty of skeptics, you could ask the skeptic, okay, well. How do you propose to maintain power over something that's more powerful than you forever? And usually the skeptics don't have an answer. <sighs> Why? what...
2: Well, trying to find what the answer is is one of the reasons why um, this open letter has caught so much attention. And we're gonna we're gonna talk in more detail with you, Professor Russell, about what we could do or what we must do, even starting now, um, in order to be you know more thoughtful and and about the development of AI and and take us as human beings down the roads to more positive um, uh, outcomes. But I wonder how much. Has the world of AI changed since you first got uh, involved in the, the research on, on on computational systems or intelligence systems, whatever you want to call them? I mean, it's been several decades. Uh, how yeah. how is yeah. it? How, I mean, I can <laughs> only imagine that it's unimaginable how it's changed, but how how, how much has it?
4: Uh, yeah, one well, might say too many decades, but <laughs> it's been um, it's been a, a roller coaster. It's in uh, in the mid '80s, when I was doing my PhD and then started as a faculty member at Berkeley, uh, that was um, a boom uh, in technology called expert systems, which were uh, systems sometimes called rule-based systems, where you you interviewed experts on a particular topic, let's say uh, you know how to configure uh, a um, a computer system or uh, how to diagnose disease. And then you would write down the expert's knowledge in the form of rules, and then uh, a reasoning engine would take those rules and and then diagnose disease or configure computers for you. Um, and the the semester that I finished at Stanford, so that was um, the summer of 1986, in one semester, 10% of the student body took the AI course. So that tells you something about how popular AI was. There were uh, hundreds of startup companies, all the big companies had created AI divisions to apply this technology to their their work and so on. Um, And within about three years, that had completely fizzled out uh, because the technology was not ready for prime time. Um, So mostly during the history of AI, we've taken what you might call a reductionist approach. We've tried to figure out how intelligence works. What are the pieces? How do you put them together? How does each piece work? Can we build a mathematical theory underlying that piece? Um, So to give one example, when you think about reasoning, which most people would say is part of what intelligent systems have to do, um, we built on logic, which goes back uh, at least to the ancient Greeks, So two and a half thousand years of history of development of logic um, and created uh, logical reasoning systems that were quite powerful um, and have been, for example, used to to prove mathematical theorems that human beings were not able to prove. Um, We developed on uh, probability theory uh, so that now systems can reason under uncertainty. And that was a big step forward. Um, and I'd say in that area, um, AI actually has contributed uh, the bulk of what we understand about how to reason under uncertainty, uh, which is a huge contribution. Um, but starting around um, 2012, uh, an approach called deep learning uh, started to become dominant in many areas. For example, in speech recognition, in uh, and in computer vision. And machine translation. And deep learning doesn't say, okay, let's study this task. let's you know, for example, computer vision, the task of recognizing objects. You might think, okay, well we've got to look for you know edges and textures and regions and then uh, try to figure out based on you know the the shading and light and dark in a region, you know what is the shape of that region and then gradually piece together all those clues to recognize objects. Deep learning just says, um, let's provide lots and lots of training data of images with labels saying this is a giraffe, this is a, a school bus, this is an ostrich, and then the learning system figures out how to recognize the object. Professor and, Russell, oh, hang
2: on here for just one second because I'm afraid we have to take a quick break. I'll let you finish that thought about the the real difference with deep learning. When we come back in just a moment, this
0: is on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina, and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music, and fall festivals galore. Then, live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie, and Wrightsville, and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com.
2: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Uh, Just want to let you know about something we're working on for later this week. We're going to be talking about the shift of people from big cities to suburbs and smaller towns. There's been a reversal of a three decades long trend of growth for America's cities and folks are moving to the suburbs and to smaller towns. So we wanna hear from you. Is that you? In the last, let's say, five or 10 years, have you moved out of a big city and to a smaller place? Even more interested if you just did it recently. Why did you make the change? Or are you still living in one of America's great cities and feel like nothing would ever pull you away? Let us know. You can uh, send us a message on our On Point Vox Pop app. If you don't already have it, just go to wherever you get your apps and look for On Point Vox Pop. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. Today we are talking about... Artificial intelligence and our ability to cope with the changes that it will bring to humanity. When I say our, I mean the human race's ability. To cope with those changes, Uh, concerns about that were raised, have been raised by many researchers, but most uh, perhaps pointedly recently by the Future of Life Institute that released an open letter calling for a pause in AI development. It was signed by almost 30,000 people, including Stuart Russell, who's a professor of computer science at the University of California, Berkeley, and a leading researcher in the field of AI. And Professor Russell, I'm sorry I had to interrupt you before because we had to take that break, but you were telling us um, the significant difference that deep learning brought around when it comes to what AI
4: can and may do in the future. Uh, Yeah, that's right. So um, as I was saying, around 2012, it started to dominate in, uh, in these areas of object recognition and images and speech recognition and machine translation. And it works simply by uh, collecting a very large data set of examples where a human being has labeled the example. So uh, an image and then a label saying, this is an ostrich. Um, And uh, all of that work that we did in AI to understand the process of recognizing objects or to understand the intricacies of of speech recognition uh, was thrown out the window. Um, And then recently, Uh, These things called large language models were developed, and they are trained uh, on very large amounts of text. Uh, And they also bypass the requirement for humans to label each piece of text, because in some sense, we've already labeled the piece of text by saying what word comes next, uh, because that next word is in the text. Um, And so we simply train these systems to predict the next word, uh, given all the preceding words in the text. Um, and this seems to bypass all that work that we did on reasoning and problem solving, because now uh, we simply present a prompt uh, which describes a question that we might have or a problem that we would like to be solved, um, such as, you know, uh, here's what my homework says. Could you could you answer the homework for me? Um, and the system will start outputting text. Uh, and the interesting thing is, we actually don't know whether it's reasoning uh if we ask it for a a plan to get to the airport we don't know whether it's planning uh we actually have no idea how it's coming up with those answers it's a giant black box um in the latest examples with probably a trillion parameters and it's trained on maybe tens of trillions of words equivalent to everything the human race has ever written um and it's trained by doing maybe a trillion, trillion small random perturbations to those trillion parameters. Uh, and it gets very, very good at, uh, at outputting text that seems like a natural continuation uh, for the text that we've put in. Um, and it's those latest systems, GPT-4 being the most recent, um, that have uh, caused some concern. I wouldn't say that they are AGI yet. Uh, but a team at Microsoft uh, of really expert people um, who spent several months with GPT-4 wrote a paper saying that it exhibits sparks of AGI, uh, which, you know, and once again, AGI, Artificial General Intelligence, is the kind of intelligence uh, that would exceed human abilities in every dimension.
2: (laughs) Do you know, it is uh, a searing irony it seems to me that um, the, the one of the core things that defines us as human, that makes us human, our language, right? Words, speaking to each other, this form of, of communication, which is um, basically uniquely human, written and spoken language, is the very thing that you're saying that these incredibly powerful deep learning technologies are being dec- excuse me technologies are being trained upon that may end up undoing us, Professor Russell?
4: Uh, I think the way I'm thinking about it right now is, is that these large language models are not AGI, and I don't think making them bigger and bigger um, is going to lead to AGI directly. Um, and I also think we're going to run out of text. There simply isn't enough text in the universe uh, to make the next version. Um, but they're a piece of the puzzle, Right. It's, it's absolutely clear when you interact with them that they have somehow captured uh, something about intelligence and they're able to uh, exhibit really unexpected capabilities. You can ask it, um, you know, give me a proof of Pythagoras' theorem in the form of a Shakespeare sonnet uh, and it will just do it. Um, and as far as I know, there are no examples of Pythagoras' theorem proof in the form of a Shakespeare sonnet in the training data. Um, so it's quite remarkable what it's able to do, but it's also quite remarkable what it's not able to do. Um, it doesn't seem to have formed a consistent internal model of the world, despite having read trillions of words of text about it. Uh, it still gets very, very basic things wrong. For example, uh, my friend Prasad Tadapali, who's a professor at Oregon, sent me uh, a conversation where he first of all asked it, um, which is larger, an elephant or a cat? And it says, an elephant is larger than a cat. And you say, well, which is not larger, an elephant or a cat? And it says, neither an elephant nor a cat is larger than the other. So it contradicts itself about a basic fact uh, in the space of two sentences. And, oh. and humans, I mean, occasionally we have... Uh, sort of mental breakdowns but by and large we try to keep our internal model of the world consistent and we um, you know we don't contradict ourselves on basic facts in that way so there's something missing about the way these systems work and so one one picture that i think is helpful is to say that we're trying to put together this jigsaw puzzle which is general intelligence and we've Found several pieces already, uh, you know, reasoning and planning and certain types of learning, uh, and this li- these language models are another piece of the puzzle. But we haven't yet figured out what shape the piece is, um, and what you know what's printed on the on the piece, so that we can fit it in with all the other pieces. But um, there are thousands of research groups around the world who are working very hard to try to figure out. Uh, exactly how it fits together.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. So we also spoke with Lewis Rosenberg, uh, who is one of the almost 30,000 people who signed the uh, Future of Life Institute's open letter. And Rosenberg is CEO and chief scientist of the tech company Unanimous AI. And he says, uh, in a matter of months years at the longest, but possibly more likely months, people will be interacting conversationally with AI agents very, very frequently, more than just, you know, Bing or uh, ChatGPT. And these AI agents will know everything about you, and they might simply be trying to help you, let's say, answer a question or do some research. But Rosenberg also fears that the AI AI agents could be used for disinformation campaigns.
1: So now... It's content just like any other content, but it's, it's conveyed to you through a conversational experience where you're eased into that information. And it's not only personalized, but it's adaptive. The AI system is going to, to see your responses, see your reservations, and it's gonna adjust its tactics to overcome those reservations and overcome that resistance. Instead of you know an, an influence campaign being you know buckshot that's sprayed out there into the world, it will become these heat-seeking missiles that are targeted at you personally. You know, talk you into that piece of content, and there are already parties out there working on that for advertising. There are there are third parties who want to be able to talk you into buying a car or buying a computer through conversational influence, and that's creepy, but. But when it's misinformation or disinformation or propaganda, it's dangerous. And that capability now exists.
2: That's Lewis Rosenberg, CEO and chief scientist of the tech company Unanimous AI. Uh, Professor Russell, hang on here for a moment because I want to bring Peter Stone into the conversation. He's also a professor of computer science, and he's director of robotics at the University of Texas, Austin. He's executive director of Sony AI America, and he's on the committee, excuse me, he's on the standing committee of the 100-year study on AI. He's chair of that committee. Professor Stone, welcome to you.
5: Hi, Meghna. Thanks for having me
2: and you also signed the future of life institute's uh, open letter here but i understand that uh, you were on the fence about it a little bit why are we being too uh, too pessimistic about the the future of ai here
5: yes i'd like to to lead off by saying that this is i've been working in the field for for 30 years and and this is an incredibly exciting time to be an ai researcher if deployed responsibly the upside potentials are enormous including Really um, helping save humanity, um, things like helping us discover vaccines and manage health crises, um, help us farm and produce food more efficiently, and, and many others. So I do think um, that uh, you know that there's there's great uh, reason for excitement and optimism, but also yes, we do need to be be cautious. And in the caution, I think it's very important to separate. Sort of two things, which you've already touched on um, in this in this show. There's the hypothetical loss of control, um, which is absolutely you know worth thinking about and and is conceivable, um, but relies on some discoveries that haven't been made yet, as as Stuart has been explaining very well. Um, that you know, with our current technologies, loss of loss of control is is not imminent. Um, and we don't really know what it would, you know, what it would look like, what the pieces of the puzzle that are remaining would look like. Um, so, um, it, it's you know worth absolutely thinking about and trying to prepare for. But really, the the reason that I signed the letter, and I think the other thing to separate is the implications of the technologies that we have right now. And this is what, what the the bite you just uh, played from Lewis are, are talking about things like um, targeted misinformation. And uh, you know, I think this is is what's really urgent for us to accelerate. Um, AI researchers and um, social scientists and policymakers to work together to think about how we can um, harness the new technology to be used for, for the good of humanity and to protect as much as possible um, against the mm. the possible downsides.
2: I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Professor Stone, um, I, I really hear you about um, not wanting to uh, ignore the the huge, you know, upsides that can come with this technology. And in in a sense, um, we're already being able to see because people are using, um, you know, the AI tools that are available to them already in their everyday lives to to very positive effect. But when I hear you say that uh, the loss of control scenario relies on um, the existence of discoveries that haven't been made yet... I mean, I don't think there's anything in human history when it comes to the development of technology that would uh, dissuade me from thinking that those discoveries might eventually be made. Right. And especially in this field, because as Professor Russell was describing, um, right now, many of these deep learning tools are doing, um, you know, they're trillions of lines of instructions, doing trillions of uh, calculations or analyses, I don't know, per second. And we don't even know how they work. So is it not a safe assumption, Professor Stone, that those discoveries that haven't been made yet will be? And so that's why now is the time to really think about how do we avoid that or what do we do when it happens?
5: Well, I, I think uh, it is the time to be thinking about these things. I think it, it's absolutely worth um, thinking about how we can, uh, you know, if and when those you know sorts of discoveries are ma- made, how we can ensure As much as possible, that that the uh, the values of the systems are aligned um, with uh, with those of of humanity. Um, But it's you know I I don't know that it's it's, I'd say it's safe to assume that those discoveries will be made. I think it's quite plausible that we will get to um, a point of um, AGI or artificial general intelligence. But we don't we don't really know what that will look like. It's not likely to be just a scaling up. Of current large language models, and um, and so you know, we, we, I think it's not um, it's not plausible to me that we would you know, it would happen without us seeing it coming, without us being able to to prepare um, and to try to harness. I, I think you know the um, to harness it for good, and uh, and this is this is what you know. As Stuart says, there's thousands of people around the world. Um, trying to make uh, artificial intelligence systems more intelligent because, of course, if we're going to try to you know make farming and food production more efficient, and we're going to try it, and we're trying to make um, discovery of vaccines and, and managing of healthcare better, we want the systems that are doing that to be as intelligent as possible. Um, but we also need to, you know, need to 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 think about what are the scenarios in which there there could be loss of control, and I think we'll get to know that better as the technology, you know, is developed and um, as we keep it in mind. As people who are doing this become more and more trained in the um, in the you know humanities and social sciences sciences and the risks as well as the technology.
2: Well, let me turn back to Professor Russell here briefly. We've got about a minute before our next break, Professor. Um, do you what do you think about the fact that that Peter Stone says? Well, the the, the, the sort of sparks of of um, of AGI may not necessarily turn into I don't know species destroying conf- conflagrations.
4: Well, I think uh, you know what Peter is saying is to some extent let's wait and see, um, and you know if we were talking about uh, you know an asteroid. We wouldn't say, well, let's start building a planetary defense system once the asteroid has crashed into the earth. Right? Let's you know, let's wait and see what, what happens when it arrives. That wouldn't be very practical. And I don't think it's very practical for for dealing with AGI.
2: Okay. Well, when we come back, um, we're gonna go step back in history a little bit and talk about a recent technology that did and continues to have the power to obliterate civilizations, and what humanity did when we invented that technology. Talking about the atomic bomb, of course, and we'll listen back to some history to see what we can learn from that. Back in a moment. This is on point. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and I want to send a special hello to listeners in eastern Iowa and northwestern Illinois today who can now hear On Point on WVIK. This is our very first day on with you in the Quad Cities, and we are deeply honored to join you on the airwaves. So hello to everyone listening to WVIK. Today we're talking about artificial intelligence and the idea brought to the public, probably most most publicly recently by an open letter from the Future of Life Institute that's calling for a six-month pause, an AI summer, if you will, so that humanity, all of us literally, can come to terms with the profound changes that artificial intelligence is and will bring to human life and also create a regulatory system To maximize the good that AI could bring while minimizing the potential catastrophes. I'm joined today by Stuart Russell. He's a major voice in the field of AI, has been uh, working on artificial intelligence for four decades. He's a professor at the University of California at Berkeley and author most recently of Human Compatible, AI and the Problem of Control. Peter Stone is with us as well. He's a professor of computer science and director of robotics at the University of Texas at Austin. And on the he's chair of the standing committee of the 100-year study on AI, Now, Professor Stone and Russell, um, I do think that fortunately, if we're intelligent enough to, to learn from our own history, we do have examples of uh, things or ways that uh, the entire world tried to grapple with um, transformational technology. So let's look at uh, one from the 20th century. And of course, that is the atomic bomb first detonated at the Trinity test site in New Mexico on July 16th. 1945. Five, four, three, two, one, no.
3: We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. A destroyer of worlds
2: I suppose we all thought that one way or another J. Robert Oppenheimer director of the Los Alamos laboratory during the Manhattan Project less than a month after the Trinity test President Harry Truman authorized the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki
3: in their present form these bombs are now in production and even more powerful farms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East.
2: More than 200,000 people were killed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The Cold War and threats of mutually assured destruction soon followed. Though atomic weapons were developed in wartime, the technology's developers were not in lockstep about its use. Two months before the U.S. bombed Japan and a month before the Trinity test, an influential group of scientists wrote a letter to Truman warning the president of what the country was creating.
0: The Frank report was one, one instance of a semi-regular drumbeat by nuclear scientists to try to raise visibility about the dangers of these weapons. Laura Grego
2: is senior scientist and research director of the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. The Frank Report, named after James Frank, the Nobel Prize winning scientist who chaired the committee that wrote it, was sent to President Truman June 1945.
0: The Frank Report came out of the group at University of Chicago, whose technical job in the Manhattan Project was to developed the methods to produce plutonium for the American bombs. In 1945, they'd completed a lot of that work. In other parts of the Manhattan Project, they were still really busy completing the bomb work. But a lot of that had been done, and they had some time to sit back and consider the effects of of the technology that they had produced. And a group of seven really eminent physicists, and I think one was a biologist and one was a chemist, sat and thought through these ideas, and they produced this report called the Frank Report, which was warning that if the United States used the bomb on Japan, it would unleash a set of results that would be really bad.
2: The Frank Report noted that by the summer of 1945, the war in Europe had ended. And that changed the stakes, they believed, writing, quote, If the United States were to be the first to release this new means of indiscriminate destruction upon mankind, she would sacrifice public support throughout the world, precipitate the race for armaments and prejudice, the possibility of reaching an international agreement on the future control of such weapons. Obviously, Truman ignored the Frank report. But the idea that there was a potential massive downside to unleashing nuclear weapons upon the world was something that even J. Robert Oppenheimer noted in July of 1945.
3: There seemed to be two great views among scientists, and no doubt would be among others if the, if people knew about it. Uh, on the one hand, they hoped, This instrument would never be used in war, and therefore, they hoped that we would not start out by using it. On the other hand, and that on the whole, we were inclined to think that if it was needed to put an end to the war and had a chance of so doing, we thought that was the right thing to do.
2: Well, Laura Grego says the Frank Report urged even more action. The report said, "quote We feel it is our duty to urge that the political problems arising from the mastering of nuclear power be recognized in all their gravity and that the appropriate steps be taken for their study and the prepar- preparation of necessary decisions.
0: We ended up uh, at one point during the Cold War with you know more than 60,000 weapons, each of which were much larger than what were used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Even today, the U.S. is prepared to spend a trillion dollars over the next 30 years to modernize and upgrade its nuclear arsenal. In 20 years, we'll, be, we'll have 100, 100 years of the atomic bomb, and um, we're not close to controlling that. We're still um, organized around these technologies of mass destruction. So I do think had, had we been better able to control that right at the very beginning of the technology, we would be in such a better place today.
2: That's Laura Grego, Senior Scientist and Research Director of the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Well, so, Professors Russell and Stone, um, the existence of the Frank Report obviously is um, a, a profound test for what happens when scientists who are developing technologies say, wait, we must pause, we must reconsider. On the one hand, Truman ignored the committee that wrote the Frank Report. We bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And as Laura Grego says, we are still in a nuclear arms race to this day. But on the other hand, we also have nuclear weapons agreements. We have the IAEA. There's uh, some evidence, at least, that we can come about as as a global human species to begin to try to come up with some guardrails uh, on these civilization-transforming technologies. I mean, Professor Russell, do you do you draw some hope from that? Uh,
4: to some extent, yes. I mean, I I've been working for about the last 10 years on an answer to the question, how do we retain power over these systems that will eventually become more powerful than we are? Um, And I see the possibility that that can be done, um, although it requires uh, redoing a lot of what we have done so far in AI um, and to do things in a very different way. But I think it's worth actually going back before the Frank report. so we've known since 1905 that a vast amount of energy uh, could be released if we could transform one type of atom into another. Um, and as early as 1915, uh, Frederick Soddy, who was uh, a Nobel Prize-winning nuclear physicist, uh, calculated you know, um, exactly what a nuclear bomb could be. Uh, in terms of you know calculating how many kilotons of dynamite uh, it would be the equivalent of, um, and saying that this technology could be disastrous for humanity and we need to agree before it arrives on how to control it. Um, he had no doubt that it would eventually arrive. But interestingly, the rest of the physics community simply stated uh, unequivocally that uh, it would never arrive and that it was impossible. And there was a really interesting episode where on the 11th of September, 1933, uh, Lord Rutherford, who was sort of the leading nuclear physicist of that era, uh, was asked, do you think we'll ever be able to uh, you know, release the energy of the atom? And he unequivocally uh, stated that it was impossible. He said, anyone who talks about that is talking moonshine. Um, and then the next morning, Leo Szilard read the about that speech and invented the nuclear chain reaction, which which led very directly to the, um, the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Uh, after Leo Szilard's invention, um, the development of nuclear weapons was inevitable mm. and relatively straightforward. Uh, so um, yet another thing happened uh, in the middle of the development of the bomb in the Manhattan Project a group of scientists pointed out that um, once you started a large enough nuclear chain reaction, uh, you know, in uranium or plutonium, uh, you might create a secondary nuclear chain reaction in the nitrogen atoms of the atmosphere, hmm. uh, which would completely ignite the entire atmosphere, and it would be the end of all life on Earth forever. Uh, and what um, what happened next was, I think, the way it should be done, uh, which is to then do a very careful study of that possibility. Um, and they showed that, in fact, the the reaction cross section, which is sort of how susceptible a nuclear, uh, you know, the nucleus of a nitrogen atom is to to being split apart by a neutron that hits it, that the reaction cross section of nitrogen was about a factor of two uh, too small. Uh, to sustain a chain reaction, unless you started it out with a much bigger bomb uh, than the one they were contemplating, so they I showed see. that in fact, yes, you could have a chain reaction destroying the atmosphere. But you know, we, we were off by a factor of two in the in the sort of numerical uh, parameters of of nitrogen. Um, but before that study was done, we literally didn't know, and we had never thought about the possibility. So if we if we had been wrong about that, right? Yeah. If, if in fact nitrogen had been a slightly different atom than it is, uh, and we had set off the nuclear bomb, then that would have been the end of the human mm-hmm. race by sheer carelessness, mm. by simply not thinking through the consequences of our own technology. And that's what I'm asking now. Uh, and I think that's in some sense what's underlying the open letter. Think through the consequences of what we're doing and ensure before taking the next step, uh, that it's safe. In my view, I think the moratorium shouldn't be six months. It should be indefinite. Do not release systems whose capabilities you don't understand uh, that exhibit sparks of artificial general intelligence. Uh, do not release those systems until you can show that they're safe. Okay. So with that in mind, you know,
2: it, it occurs to me that another significant difference Um, in terms of the circumstances surrounding the development of nuclear weapons um, or nuclear technology more broadly, not just weapons, but nuclear technology more broadly, um, including its upsides. Uh, One of the differences between that and what we have now with AI is that um, governments were the ones developing the technology in the nuclear age, in the atomic age, Um, whereas now we have... Um, the private sector Mostly, I mean, it, 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 the governments are involved, especially in the United States and in China. But this call for regulation is coming from um, from from businesses, from corporations, from independent scientists. Um, meaning that while the for the atomic age, we did form these treaties, we have the IAEA. That sounds like it might be a, quite a bit more difficult with with AI. If governments are already so far behind in terms of even understanding what's being developed. So, Peter Stone, we've just got about a minute and a half left. So, you're going to get the last word today. But I want to know like one or two of the specific ideas that you would have that could lead to some kind of more intelligent and thoughtful regulation of AI, especially if governments aren't quite up to speed yet on even understanding sort of the some of the potential threats as as we've described today.
5: Yeah, thank you. A- absolutely. I mean, I think, number one, just like you said, the one of the most crucial things to do is to make sure and to help governments get up to speed on what are the realistic uh, threats and what are the realistic um, possible uses, positive uses. And, um, and absolutely, I think, you know, regulation um, of specific sectors, of AI technologies in different sectors, is going to be an essential part of this, um, of, of our path forwards. And one of the reasons I think, you know, that the... Um, then a pause, a short pause is, is useful, is to give time for governments to to figure out how, how to do this. I don't think that it's going to be a um, a winning strategy to try to uh, squash or you know um, uh, stop progress, technological progress, or to regulate AI as a whole. But I think it's it's essential to think about how should we regulate current AI technologies on specific use cases, such as transportation, on healthcare, and the answers are going to be different. What, what should we you know, put into place um, when we're thinking about AI technologies for radiology versus AI technologies for um, for food production. And this is just a, an urgent and um, an essential conversation that we all need to be have, having. And um, I think you know, it's a, it's great to have conversations like this one for people to start thinking about it.
2: Well, we also need our elected officials to listen and to take it seriously when the very people developing this technology are saying, We need to start thinking aggressively about it right now. So Peter Stone, professor of computer science at the University of Texas at Austin, thank you so very much. And Stuart Russell at the University of California at Berkeley, thank you as well. We'll continue this conversation. I'm
0: Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.